Here we have the seventh church, the most notorious, the church of Laodicea. And that for good reason. My professor in his commentary talks about my systematics professor uh, and father in the faith, Doug Kelly. He talks about uh, how (laughs) the phrase from the sublime to the ridiculous and really here we, uh, we, we do move from the sublime Philadelphian small little faithful church against whom nothing, no rebuke is brought, but only praise and exhortation to continue steadfastly to this ridiculous uh, church, this sad church, sad because, and Jesus indeed pities them, and we'll talk about that, because she, she thinks she's so rich, she thinks she is so well positioned, and she is so poor, and she is so naked and she is so ugly and she is so bereft of true wealth and powerless and shameful she's greatly deceived and that's what money has the power to do this is a rich physically materially wealthy church and gosh if we can't as an american church by and large as as churches in houston as the Western church with these great buildings, pocketbooks, books full, these programs. If we cannot be convicted by, if we do not pay attention to this church in particular, above all the others that we are, there's no hope for us. And it's terrifying. But what's more terrifying is not paying attention to this word from the risen Christ, because he gives us his words heal. They cut right down to the cancer, but only to take out the cancer. So we need to listen. (coughs) Excuse me. God bless me. We need to listen. And I go, I need to go ahead and read the the text now with very little comment, hopefully no comment. Um, Let me read it. This is the last word to the seven churches in Asia Minor, Minor, Turkey. And, and then we move into the throne room, the nerve center of the cosmos. And then of course, the rest of the book, which is the, uh, the opening of the scrolls by Jesus, which leads to the trumpets, then the bowls, and then the end. Okay. Um, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Revelation three fourteen and following, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A couple things here before we start off, jump into the text. I think, again, sort of to pull back to what I said a second ago before reading the text in my opening, and that is that we need to pay attention to this because it's God's word, certainly, but because it's the position of it. It's the seventh of seven. It's the last one, which is a position. It's been put in that position, to, I think, to hold our attention. It's the last one. It kind of lingers in our mouth, like the last taste of something or drink of a wine that you have or whiskey. It lingers. That taste, like when you brush your teeth, it's the last thing you do after you eat and maybe go without eating until the next meal, until lunch. It lingers, that toothpaste, that minty freshness. That the Laodicean church colors the rest of the churches here. It lingers. And certainly in the, as an American church in, in the West, if you're listening and you're part of the Western church or you live uh, exposed to the Western church and you're not a Christian, God bless you for listening to this. Um, I don't know how you found us, but God bless you. You know, we, we need to pay attention here. So the position of this, I think, is really important. God, Jesus is saying, in particular, he's pressing in on this. It was an ancient problem. It was a problem with the Laodicean church. It's been a problem throughout church history. It's a problem where there's material wealth because it so wealth has such power to deceive us, which is why there's so much emphasis on poverty. I mean, the first thing, Jesus says when he opens his mouth and preaches the best sermon ever, Matthew 5, verse 3, and he opened his mouth and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's so much emphasis on poverty, not because poverty is a good thing, it's an evil, but poverty of spirit is a good thing, and it's the only way, it's the only door into the kingdom, because we have to come to God in one way only, and that is knowing we have nothing to offer him. Of value. On the contrary, we have our sin and our law breaking and our injustices and our selfishness and our pride and our hatred. All the things Christ died for to kill, to break, to bury, to do away with. We have to come realizing that and therefore poor, saying, Lord, if you're going to do this, it has to be you. If you're going to bring me in, if you're going to make me your son, if you're going to make me clean, it has to be you and not me because I have nothing to offer but nasties. So there's so much emphasis on poverty, um, I think, because there's so much emphasis on riches because they have the power to deceive. And on poverty, not because it's a great thing, but because riches are from the Lord, but we tend to wrap our hearts around them because money can get us so much and and comfort feels so much nicer than discomfort. And so we'll do almost anything for money and to get more money and to hold on to the money and money leads to power and to hold on to the power and and money and power lead to comfort and to hold on to the comfort. And so, and Jesus knows this is the way to hell. It's the way to misery, but almost more than any of that, it's, it's because it's so deceptive. It can make us look so favored. I mean, the health wealth gospel essentially at its root is like, Hey, you know, if God really loves you, he's going to bless you with his blessing looks like this money and health. And if you have money and health, he must really be pleased with you. I mean, it's not just a modern heresy. It's an ancient heresy. It's packed into the uh, thing that Jesus' disciples say when they say they they pass the blind man. And they say, who who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? That's a health, wealth gospel. I mean, it's the way that we think. It's, It's the Job. It's at the root of the book of Job. His friends, their major heresy, the reason God is so hot mad at them just hot, furious, and angry 
which he says, which he shows very clearly in that enigmatic book in chapter 42 at the very end, when he says to the friends, I'm, I'm ticked at you because you haven't spoken to me what's right. And their, their thing is, it's a tip for ta- theology. It's the rest of, it's religion. It's the rest of the religions of the world, except for the true religion, Jesus, uh, the gospel, the Christianity, the gospel of Christ. And that is that, hey, we were paid for how we live. No, Jesus, the gospel, the true, the true religion is that Jesus was paid for how we live and he gave us his life in his record and his perfection and his beautiful relationship with the father and his peace. And he took our war into himself. So, so the truth is that we get the opposite of what we deserve. If we get what we deserve, we go to hell, but Jesus took that for us. So, um, so we're, what am I saying? Um, the, yeah, the health, wealth, gospel heresy, it's Job's, Job's friends. You know, hey, you, you're, you're really suffering here. You must have done something wrong. Um, so, so, so conversely, again, if I'm, if I'm wealthy, then I must need nothing. I must, be, I must be good. And that's really at the heart of what is happening with this church. And that's why Jesus comes so hard against it. The second thing I want to say before we jump in, and this has already gotten too long, longer than I want it to be, but is that the amazing amount, as unhealthy as this church is, and he comes hard against it because he's deceived and he loves her, and she, he wants her to be undeceived. Hey, this isn't your true condition. Your true condition is the opposite of what, you, you're not rich, you're poor. You're not doing well, you're doing horribly. You're not well, well decked out. You are naked. You're not, you're not seeing, you're blind. Uh, but the other thing is that uh, not only is this the seventh and, and therefore needs special, special attention by us because it lingers to all the churches throughout history that, that, that have material wealth. It doesn't mean that God approves. It means that we have been given extra responsibility. Ooh, this is so convicting. Just steward those things for the kingdom, to be generous in our giving, to bless the poor, to preach the gospel, to use those resources for his kingdom. And, and okay, the second thing is that how much time he spends, not only how much time he, how much time he spends on the promises, but also how the qualitatively, how wonderful the promises. I think these are the richest promises promise of amazing intimacy and astounding power given to this horrible church. So it's just wonderful. Just a reminder of the gospel. He doesn't, he doesn't give us promises based on our performance. Although I will say, and this isn't preached on, taught on much, we see throughout this, to him who conquers, to him who conquers. Hey, he knows and he cares. And the way that we live with faith in him throughout our lives, what we do with what he's given us, it matters. It's going to ring throughout eternity or not. Okay, we can be Christians and all of our works can be burned up like, like hay, wood, and stubble. Or our works can be gold that will, that will last. So how we live as Christians matters. Matters, matter. It will matter forever. Um, there will be rewards, different rewards and different responsibilities handed out in the new creation. That is, saying that out loud is harrowing to me. I need, it just makes me want to live different, which is good. So, um, Jesus says that he's the faithful and the true witness in verse 14 to them. Again, every church, he says to every church, essentially the same thing at first, which is he tells them something about who he is. And, and so the answer to all of our predicaments is look at me. Jesus says, fix your eyes on me. That's the author of Hebrews when he's wrapping up this amazing sermonic epistle, this letter that he's written to the church. He says, Therefore, let us fix our eyes 
on Jesus. In light of everything I've just said, friends, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And he reminds him of the gospel, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Right? He has all power. He's seated. He's pulling the levers of the universe. We see that in Revelation 4 and 5 coming up. And everything that's happening is happening now because of who he is and what he's done. And we'll come back to that here in this letter, in this little lesson here. Everything that's happening is happening here. It's happening because, because of what Jesus has done and according to that economy. And I'll explain in a second. So he's, he, he presents this, look at me, and in particular to this church, I'm the faithful and the true witness. Why do you think Jesus says that? Well, what is he saying, first of all? Imagine him in a court of law. He's saying he's the witness to who he faithfully and truly <clears throat> tells us exactly what God is like and shows us. Basically, his hand is up in a courtroom and he's saying, I swear to tell the whole truth about God and what he's like. In my life, in the way I live, in what I say, in my teaching, in the way that I heal and open blind eyes and spend time with the poor and redeem sinners and love them and admonish those that think that they're okay on their own out of love to try to bring them back to God, know that they can't stand on their own merits. They have to stand on my merits, right? I came to do for them what they could not do for themselves. We see in the, in the becoming one of us and being born poor in the condescension of simply becoming a human, a God Almighty who made the stars, who made us, who made all creation with a breath, and then the condescension of being rejected by his own people, working with stone and wood for 20 some odd years in preparation for his ministry and his death, choreographing through our evil and sin and free choice, choreographing his own shameful and excruciating murder and opening up through that murder a way for us to be saved, the way for us to be saved, the only way, and then beating death breaking the power of sin by paying for it on the cross and rising to a new kind of life that he invites us to. So we see in the life and the person of Jesus and his behavior and his words and his actions um, and his death on the cross preeminently, which brings, it brings the whole Old Testament that tells us about who God is and a sharp and pointed focus. This is the character of God. This is what he's like. My old professor who takes from another professor at uh, New College Edinburgh says something like this. We see in the face of, of Christ. We see, uh, and this is really, is this not 2 Corinthians 4? Um, we see in the face of Christ, the heart of God. In, in his hands, in his feet, in his words, in his actions, we see what makes God tick. And this is, what, what is this, John's prologue? John, the last verse in his prologue, John 1.18, no one has seen God, but the only God. John calls, calls Jesus the only God, the only God who sits at the Father's right hand or who rather um, is at the side of the Father in his bosom, literally in the Greek. He's as close to God as you can get. He is with God and he indeed is God, John 1.1. 1, 1. This only God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who's become flesh, John 1.14. He's become sarks. He's become flesh and bone. He has made him known. He's made the invisible God known perfectly. It's like a flag that's folded up. You see Marines folding a flag and then, they, and then you unfold it and you put it up on a flagpole and you raise it up and the wind hits it and it cracks it open and it's fluttering in the breeze and you can see all the designs. 
That is what Jesus does with us to God. He shows us exactly in all of his color and delineation what God is like. He, the word in the Greek is exegete. He exegetes God. In other words, uh, he brings out he brings out what is packed in to who God is, his character, what makes him tick. So he says, I'm the faithful and the true witness. In other words, he's saying that when you see me, you see God. And when you see my poverty, my compassion, and my lack of pomp and circumstance, it's opposite you. God is not appearances. God cares about the heart. First Samuel 16 is at verse 7. Okay? God is substance. God cares about substance. He's not a proud, he's not impressed with outward show. And it is the way the cross, the incarnation of, of Christ is a poor and a humble carpenter and stonemason who cared for the poor, who gave his life on a cross for us. That is how God is going to rule the universe moving forward. Not through wealth, not through, not in a guilt, not through gildedness. Not wonderful. And that's kind of packed in, I think, too, to the next thing he says about himself is he's the beginning of God's creation, verse 14. And we see that in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 as well. This doesn't mean that he is a creation. The son is not a creation of God. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that he, he once was not and now he is, that God made him. No. It means that both he was born. There was a point in time in which he was the second person of the Trinity who's always been, who is God, who's always been with the Father and the Spirit entered our creation as a human child and grew up. He was both born in the flesh and he remains a human and will always be the God man representing us and with us one day face to face. And it means that he is the beginning of a new type of humanity. He's the foundation stone on which all creation will be built. He is the first fruit of a new crop. First Corinthians fifteen twenty three. He's the first fruit. He is what the new creation is going to come out of and his work. Why does he do it to this church? Maybe because they, and we need to know that it's the beginning of God's creation. Christ is telling us that his poverty, again, here it is, his poverty and self-denial and cross are the way that God will rebuild the universe. Not through strength and show and wealth. So the building of his kingdom, which is all that will last in the new creation, is through suffering and through relinquishment and through choosing not to win our arguments and not to assert ourselves and not to avenge ourselves because God will avenge us. He will repay. He has taken our sin and our curse upon himself so we can give out mercy and compassion and forgiveness. Uh, he's going to build the, the new creation through surrender rather than acquisitiveness uh, and strength and self-assertion and grasping and being clever and being first. No, he's going to, build the universe through laying our lives down because Christ laid his life down for us. And through that atomic bomb power that was released at the cross of the surrender, the dying in the ground of the seed, this first fruit of a new bumper crop that will lead to a new creation grows. Okay, that's all. I really need to be brief here in my three points here, but that's all intro, okay? Okay. But I've kind of talked about this first point quite a lot, but the danger of riches, I think that's, that's a huge, obviously, point to this because it's not just, hey, rich is bad. It's not just, hey, you're wealthy, bad. That's not, I mean, God gives wealth. I mean, Martin Luther has this great quote about how money's not evil, wealth isn't evil. God gives it. God chose to, so many, part of the problem with just reading the New, and being a New Testament Christian only 
is that it's so short. It only covers about 100 years, really less. Uh, but the Old Testament covers centuries and centuries and so much longer, three times the length, and it's so much more varied, and they belong together. Genesis to Revelation is God's word. I mean, there's a sense in which God's word is the Old Testament and the answer key is the New Testament, right? Because God, Jesus shows us in sharp relief what, who God is in the Old Testament, what he's doing. He brings it into sharp focus. The mysteries become plain. What, what has long been hidden in the Hebrew Bible becomes plain in Christ. Um, and we stand on the far side of that wonderful, wonderful inheritance that we have. But my point is that... Um, that wealth and riches are not bad. It's that they have such a power to deceive us. They can make us think very easily. The more we get to them, especially they can bend our hearts to thinking that, um, to, to worshiping them and to being deceived by them into thinking that our state is good that we're okay. Uh, and it's not that he doesn't come against their wealth. He comes against what's the phrase here. Um, he comes against the fact that, listen, let me just read it, okay? He says, for you, verse 17, for you say, I am rich. That's not where he stops, thank God. For you say, I'm, in other words, let me, I just realized I didn't finish. In the Old Testament, we have all these wealthy characters. I mean, Abraham had 314, is it? Men in his household of fighting age that he took out to go rescue Lot and is it Genesis 14? I mean, think about that. 314 men of fighting age. Think about how big, those are all men under his care in his household. Think about how many people he had. He probably had a small village, 2,000 people or so, maybe more. Uh, and they were all, I mean, God made him a very, very, very wealthy man, even though he was a sojourner. And, and on and on I could go. Joseph, Daniel, Job, David, he says to David when David sins, if you'd asked, I would have given you even more. Just ask. Solomon. And on and on it goes. God is the giver of wealth, but Jesus doesn't stop. For you say, I am rich. Okay, doesn't stop there. I have prospered. Fine. And I need nothing. That's the thing. That's the point. That's, that's what he's levying against them. Not that they're rich, but that they, because they're rich, and they say, I need nothing. They're so deceived. Riches have, Keller puts this better than anyone I've read, Riches have such a power to deceive us. And God doesn't, he doesn't care about appearances. He cares about what is. He doesn't care about what seems, but what is. That's what he's going to weigh and judge. And riches can so make us think we're doing okay when we're not. And, you know, Keller says that, like, riches almost more than anything else can make us think that we're an expert in everything. You've seen, to use a sort of silly example, people I waited tables for a while and there are guys who um and this happens this happens well sometimes but it's the exception I think but a, a rich person who loves going out to eat loves food is a gourmand something of a gourmand or a dilettante anyway with with food and um thinks hey you know I I know what I like I know all these restaurants I've been to enough and I like nice things and I'm wealthy and I've succeeded in these other ways and maybe just in one way have I've made widgets really well and so I have all this money you know I've known men who've like built concrete industries and they have a lot of money and they 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 what do they do they they built the concrete's their thing but they could think that because they have a lot of money and they succeeded on one thing they they could succeed at anything they're experts in everything even in matters of faith even in matters of but but so you have a guy that he goes, okay, well, I'm going to buy this restaurant, run this restaurant. 
Well, he doesn't know anything about running a restaurant. He just likes food. And so a lot of times that ends up failing miserably. Um, now, money, it's a silly example. Money can deceive us into thinking we're experts in everything, in the things to do with God, with eternal life, even. Um, we have his favor if we have money. And that's so often, so often not the case. Money money's a gift from God, but it doesn't. It can be a curse if we wrap our... There's a real attendant danger there. There's an occupational, as it were, hazard, an attendant hazard with being wealthy. That's one of the reasons we need to give lots of our money away because it's a guard against that. It reminds us it's not ours. It opens our hands, which tend to grasp around money on wealth. Um, so it's not that they, they, they're rich, it's that they're rich and they think they need nothing. And our true state with everyone, not just the rich, is that we need everything. We need so much from God. How does he go on? He says this. He says, you think you're rich and you think you need nothing. You say, I need nothing. And here's the true estate that Jesus outlines, lays out, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable. So they think they need nothing. What's, what do they really need? They're, what's their real estate? I, I need nothing. I have everything I need. No, no, no. He says, you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. And what is his counsel to them? To buy. Isn't that interesting? But not with the money they can. He's going back to Isaiah 55 here. I counsel you to buy, what does he say, from me. Jesus has things that money can't buy, that we have to go straight to the store of Jesus for. We have to buy them from him. Only he can, he can, only, only he can make us rich in ways that matter before God, that matter substantially, that will pass through death into the life to come, that will help us to stand under God's scrutiny. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Gold that's going to last. Jesus was put through the fire of the wrath of God. And he came out the other side through death alive. That can only be appropriated by faith, by receiving with an open hand, not through acquisition, not through money, not through something we've earned, not through our hard work or effort, but given to us, bought as it were, from Jesus by faith and received, received. Um, he says, I counsel you to go buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. It's that. It's the gold of Jesus and from Jesus that's been refined at the cross. It's passed through death into a new kind of life. It's imperishable. That is what makes us truly rich, not our stuff. Our stuff's going to burn how are we using it for the kingdom? That's all that matters. So that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself because they're naked, right? And cover your shame. We, at the, at, he says, you know, shame. Sin, the first thing that's said essentially about sin in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve turn from God and go their own way and choose to believe the words of the serpent and their own judgments about who God is rather than who God says he is and who he really is, is that they are ashamed Whereas before they were not ashamed, Genesis 2, is it 25? Shame settles on them. And that's something that we each as humans were born into sin and we struggle with shame. We struggle with shame. Shame is like so attendant with, it goes hand in hand with sin. But we're not made to be that way. And Jesus came by his blood to cover our shame, to lift it from us. He is the lifter of our heads. And he says, look, Cover your shame with the white garment. In other words, buy it from me. It's not yours. It's not, you can't drum it up or gin it up through your own efforts. It's a white garment. It, it's my righteousness put upon you. 
by faith. It's an alien righteousness, an outside righteousness. Philippians 3, Paul, not, you know, not, um, so that I said so I would have, I, I, he, he, he says, look, I have an amazing resume, but none of that counts. Why? It, let, me, let me show you. I don't come in my, not having a righteousness of my own, not something that I've done, my own performance, my own wealth, my own intelligence, my own social connections. No, not having a righteousness of my own. I don't stand before God with any confidence in who I am. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes from God. It's an alien righteousness. It comes from him, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness given to us, received. Faith is an open hand that receives the gift of full righteousness and perfect reception and standing and sonship in Jesus Christ and forgiveness of our sins. We are forgiven. We are adopted. We're brought into the household of God through Jesus. He can make us rich, only he. And riches make us think we got it all. We're okay. We're not. And then, he, and then the rest of it is, and he says, then salve that, to anoint your eyes that you may see. You know, in other words, become undeceived. Only God by his Holy Spirit can open our eyes to see that without him we're dead in our sins and trespasses. Only he can make us alive. Um, you know, I was blind, but now I see. Those amazing words from Amazing Grace by John Newton. And then verse 19 and following, he just, he just rhapsodizes. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Remember, again, he doesn't say, and I haven't, I've just touched on this, I haven't really said it, but what's their true condition? Among other things, they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind. In other words, you're worthy of pity. I pity you. I have compassion on you. You're, your estate is miserable and that my heart goes out to you. It's not a hateful word from Jesus. It's not you're rich and you're actually poor and miserable and you look terrible and I hate you. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I feel so sorry for you. I'm so torn up because you're so deceived by your outward possessions and your appearance. But we see that explicitly that he doesn't hate them, but loves them in verse 19. Those whom I love, I've approved. What's why is he reproving and disciplining them? Why does he reprove and discipline us? Why does he come against us with a hard word? What's the hardest word of God? It's the cross. The cross tells us what, what Jesus took is what we deserve. That's why they crucified him. Because he didn't come just saying, hey, okay, let's go take Rome. I'm the Messiah. I'm going to be your king. I'm on your side. I'm a Jew. No, he came and said, all of you, Jew and Gentile, deserve the wrath of God. You're sinners. You're worthy of nothing but his condemnation. You've earned that. That is offensive. And you can't receive his good graces and his, in, in any way that you can earn. Um, that's why I've come to do it for you. That is offensive to the flesh. And that's why the, he got crucified. Because people that trusted in themselves could not countenance that. But sinners look to him. Those who know they are sinners and have no hope inside themselves look to Jesus. And so he comes in love to give us these hard words. And then he just opens up with this amazing double promise of, you know, the famous, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man comes to the door and opens it, I will come in and, die, and sup with him and he with me. So it's an, it's an offer of intimacy. And then he says, and you will sit with me on my throne and reign and rule with me. 
on his throne, the nerve center of the universe. The, the throne is where he sits now at the right hand, the hand of power of God. It's the nerve center of the universe. It's, it's the control center. It's where all the levers are pulled. Everything down here, it looks like it's happening because of the geopolitical powers and the who's who and the intelligentsia. It's not. It's happening because God is pulling levers and he's choosing, he's doing it through Jesus, his son, the king, the true king, and all knees will bow. And he's the king of kings and he's coming again. And, and God is saying to this miserable church, I will make you so rich and powerful through what I've done. You will sit with me and you will reign. It's an, it, the intimacy, the supper, supping with Christ, being brought into his fellowship, into relationship with him, soul satisfying relationship where we're eating and drinking with him as his friends. The offer of intimacy and the offer of power are unparalleled. And this is what he finishes with. And I think he finishes with it, not just to Laodicea, but to the whole church. It's the seventh, it's the last word that he speaks to the historic and universal church. And he says, this is what is on offer through what I've done. This is the gospel and you need to offer it to every man, woman, and child. This is the glory of the good news of God in Jesus Christ. It's on offer to anyone who will not be deceived into thinking that you can be okay in your own standing. But realize your true estate. Realize that you're a wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked, and come to me and buy from me. Get clothed. Get purified. Get your eyes open. Get true wealth. I'll let you sit with me and reign forever and explore and adventure and judge and create and love and feast You know, I should close here with the words that close the Bible at the end of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come, right? Christ says, come. Come, all who thirst, and I will give you drink of rivers that, will, that will, you'll never thirst again. They'll spring up from you. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen to you. God bless you.